You need to forget about all the normal rules that apply to both college and society. Welcome to another episode of Deharmonizing. I am your co-host, Andrew. I'm your co-host, Josh. Guess what? In a couple weeks, you are going to be in New Orleans, Louisiana. That is right. You and I are going to see the last ever concert of KISS. The final, absolute, ultimate end of the road. That's what they say. And uh, we will be there with many drinks watching the show. It is going to be so funny. Do you have your KISS t-shirt picked out yet? What you're going to wear? Yes, I have my KISS Army t-shirt. Oh, that's right. Oh, man, I was going to get you a funny KISS, like a really bad KISS t-shirt, but I forgot to do it. That means you have to wear it. (laughs) No way. But no, it's going to be fun. You're coming in on a Thursday, and you're staying until Saturday, right? Uh Uh-huh. That's right. So we uh, we should live it up. The show is Friday night. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it's Friday night at 7 or 8 or something like that. We'll do like a podcast diary kind of thing, like an audio diary of our of our trip to New Orleans and just all the, the chaos that I'm sure will ensue. All right, real quick, though, before we get started, we want to do a quick plug for all the different ways that you can access deharmonizing content. We have SoundCloud. You can go follow us on SoundCloud. iTunes, go subscribe right now to iTunes. And you can also follow us on AudioMac. We have our website, www.deharmonizing.com. Go check us out. We have all of our episodes archived. And we have our Facebook page, uh, which is just Deharmonizing. And, of course, there's also Twitter. So plenty of different ways you can find us. And if you get a chance, go drop some comments. Uh, We like feedback. Check us out. All right, here we go. We are here to talk about... Batman, The Caped Crusader, The Dark Knight. March of 2019 marks the 80th anniversary of the very first appearance of Batman in the Detective Comics way back in March of 1939. That's when Batman first appeared. So it's the 80th anniversary of that issue of that first Batman comic. 2019 is also the 30th anniversary of of the Tim Burton film, Batman, that came out in 1989. Josh, what day, what day did that movie come out? Do you remember? Friday, June 23rd, 1989. My brother Jared and I, and you and your brother Nick separately saw the film. You guys were walking out of the theater and we were in line and you, we were like, how was it? And you were like, it's awesome. Yeah. I remember that day so vividly. And I remember the 
the commercial and then you'd see the Batman logo, which was, I, I just thought, the coolest looking logo ever. And it would say June 23rd. June 23rd. I don't remember ever being as fired up to see a movie ever as I was for Batman, 19, the, the 1989 movie. Do you? Certain movies every so often come out and there's just so much hype around it and this was one of them. I, I guess because the next generation had their own Batman, right? Because Batman had been around so long. The comic book obviously had been around for many, many years and I think it was just that buildup of, oh my God, it's going to be a new Batman! And obviously Tim Burton's take on it was really unique or at least... That's the perception. So everybody was excited. I mean, this movie really invented the modern blockbuster. I mean, Jaws is sort of penciled and circled as the movie that invented the blockbuster. But the Tim Burton Batman really invented the modern blockbuster just with all the hype. I remember product tie-ins. I remember Taco Bell running commercials up into MTV had all these different promotions. The The trailer was on nonstop. The t they brought back the TV show. Right now at Taco Bell, you can collect free Batman cups, like a free Batmobile cup. Or a free Batwing cup. Now with Batman, the cereal, a smashing taste. With Batman, cereal. Uh, you know, this is pre-Marvel and DC Wars, right? All this stuff now, so many movies, and the movies make billions of dollars. Every single one that comes out does pretty well, or to, to great. This is way before all the stuff that's ha that happens now. Kids today and future generations will never really be able to appreciate just the, the comic book drought that we went through. The 70s and the 80s, there was really nothing. I mean, you had Superman and the, you know, the first two that were I thought were pretty good. The last two were terrible. Superman 4? You don't think that was a good movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw it in the theater. I want my money back to this day. But that was it. Like, you had TV shows. You had Wonder Woman in the 70s, and you had The Incredible Hulk, and you had Spider-Man. Yeah, you did have a Spider-Man film, which was... Uh, all, everything was very low rent. I'm sure you can agree on this. If you go back before Batman 1989, before that, it was pretty bad because... Let's face it, no compute, no CGI, no computer-generated images, right? So once they are able to do that, superhero uh, movies were elevated into a whole other level. But there's something about the practical effects that they used in the Superman movie, the Richard Donner film. Like, yes, there are, there are times where he's flying behind a blue screen, and it's obviously very 1970s. But there are some, some of the more practical effects that they use in that movie, I think, really hold up pretty well. You know, whenever he would fly in and fly out, I mean, that was all done live, or that was all done in real time, where they would just put him on cables and he would just kind of glide in and land. I think those kinds of effects actually, yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't hold a candle to CGI today, but I think some of those, some of those effects in the 70s for those Superman movies were actually pretty good. That's a good point. Actually, you know, even if you think about like Star Wars, I mean, anytime I always revisit that movie at least once a year and it, that definitely holds up. So there's certain, I think it's just certain 
things that they do, just like you said, if it's like he's landing and it's like he's gliding in really well, uh, it's just other shots when he has to be way up in space. Those movies have good stories, though. They have good. I mean, the the acting is the acting is really good. I mean, Gene Hackman is really good. There's a bigger underlying story about why superhero movies were not made in the '70s and '80s. And a lot of it had to do with lingering Batman stuff from the 60s. The thought was that superhero movies just were not marketable. They were not going to generate revenue. Superman proved that wrong to an extent, but it was still really hard to convince movie studios to take a plunge. Excuse me. That's a bad I think what we wanted to really do today was go through three or four different Batman eras, because Batman evolved from the time that he started in the late 30s, and talk, you know, work our way up to present day, and we'll spend a little bit of time in each era. And what we're going to do is we're going to highlight one film from each of the four or five eras that we've kind of decided ahead of time are the best of those of those four different eras. Yep, let's do it. The first big screen adaptation of Batman was that really bad uh, 40s serial. And I remember you had that on VHS. I did, yeah. I was a big fan of it. Well, I mean, just the campiness of it, obviously. Yeah, the 40s one. Was the 40s one campy, though? Maybe not campy, just cheap. And then seeing something old, black and white, trying to them trying to do effects and the silly... Like it's, it was very comic booky and one-dimensional in more ways than one. I think the thing that stuck out to me as the most hilarious was the fact that Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson drove the same kind of car that Batman and Robin drove. Yeah. Remember, it was that white, old, Edsel-looking... 40s car or whatever yeah it's probably because this it was really for kids at that point and there weren't many adults the batman tv show of the 60s there's a lot of back and forth about what the batman tv show from 1966 to 1968 was really trying to accomplish and we're talking of course about the adam west batman and the show was really not trying to do a spoof of the comic book character so much as it was trying to spoof the serials of the 40s and really make fun of that. And where that older show from the 40s was a lot more unintentionally funny, the TV show was intentionally trying to be funny. The shark repellent bat spray. True, Robin. It was noble of that animal to hurl himself into the path of that final torpedo. He gave his life for ours. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. You filthy criminals. Surrender! You criminals! You abominable outlaws. They may be drinkers, Robin, but they're also human beings. I remember watching those shows and not getting the joke really at all. I remember taking them very seriously. Like, I remember being incredibly impressed anytime Robin would solve one of those terrible riddles. The comic books actually did do a lot of the stuff they did when they were trying to figure out riddles they were like talking through it and getting it really quickly and uh, they did it in the tv show but the the genius of that tv show is that they knew 
that it was silly. Emergency. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy surprises, Batman. It's really exciting. The arch-villains of the United Underworld, the Joker, the Penguin, the Riddler, and the Catwoman combine forces to dispose of Batman and Robin as they launch their fantastic plot to control the entire world. From his submarine, Penguin and his cohorts hijack a yacht containing a dehydrator, which can extract all moisture from humans and reduce them to particles of dust. The evildoers turn the nine Security Council members in the United World Building into nine vials of multicolored crystals. Batman and Robin track the villains in their bat boat and use bat charged missiles to force the submarine to surface. The plot exists mostly just to just to cram as many jokes as they can into the film. One of the things I love about Batman 1966 is just the attention to detail. For example, when they, they have the bat cycle, and the bat cycle is they're taking the bat cycle to the bat copter. And so the bat cycle, it has it's like a motorcycle, but then it has like a little extra car for Robin. When they get close to the bat copter, it detaches and like Robin goes around, like his his sidecar <laughs> rolls all the way to the other side of the copter, like where he would get in, and then Batman goes to the like his side. Because like they can't waste any time of both of them getting out and then walking around to the copter. <laughs> like like Robin has to <laughs> So precise and such attention to detail. Like well, they can't waste any seconds. So they have this bat pole, the bat phone. They hit a button on the bat phone, and that opens the library wall. Right. And then they slide. They slide down the bat pole. When they slide down the pole, it it, it pulls out to a wide shot of the whole bat cave, and there's like a staircase right next to the bat pole. When they slide down, it cuts to the bottom floor, and they they come into into the scene, sliding down in their costumes. So. Like there's 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 no mechanism to which the costume comes on. It just cuts, and they're like they're like just have them have the costumes on. People will just be like, yeah, whatever. How would that work if you're going down a bat pole that transforms you your your suit into a costume? Is there some sort of thing that pulls it off? And like, do the, are they wearing it underneath? Does it go over the suit? So like, that's the, that's the genius of the show, though. It's like cut to the chase. Send them off fighting crime. The um, the show was canceled after the <laughs> after so the show the show well, the show was canceled after its third season. So it was on for three years. Is in the sixties was three years a good amount of time for a TV show? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of some of the longest running. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine there's not many long-running shows at that time. I believe Bonanza was on for many years. I think the movie is great, but I don't. I don't think that it was quite the hit that they were expecting it to be. Did you know that the premiere of the movie was in Austin, Texas? No. The uh, the company that made the bat boat, the company that built the bat boat, was based out of Austin, and their their stipulation for doing the boat, making the boat, was for it it to have its premiere in Austin. Oh, that's neat. That's cool. There's four villains in it. There's the Joker, Penguin, Catwoman, and um, the Riddler. And the, the it's kind of the Penguin and the Riddler's show. They're sort of the two villains that are mostly in charge of the plot to to kill Batman and Robin and then the plot to get rid of the UN Council or the Security Council, whatever they call them. And, and the Catwoman has a pretty big role, too, because she's there to sort of seduce Bruce Wayne and all that kind of stuff. The Joker is just sort of there. I was going to say, when you mentioned Catwoman, do you mean Katanya Arenya, Katanya Karinska Alasov? I'm from the Moscow Bugle. My friends call me Kitka. Kitka. 
a charming acronym. Thank you, Comrade Wayne. Where did that come? That came out of your brain? Came from Jared, actually. My brother Jared. He he uh, um, would say that he would always have something that he would latch on to. And that was one of them. And then, of course, I knew it, too, because we would say it all the time. Because he, he would think it was, I think, just because he thought it was funny. Let's talk about the 70s a little bit. So what happened to comic book superheroes between the impact of the Batman TV show? We have, the, we have Superman in the 70s. But there was a big screen comic book drought of the 70s. The special effects weren't there. The budgets weren't there. It just It definitely was lacking. Although, at the time, I thought it was pretty good. Like, whenever... Bill Bixby would change into Lou Ferrigno. I always thought that was pretty badass. At the time, it was like that was the best you could get. So you're like, man, that looks pretty good, man. That's really cool. He always had purple pants on that were ripped. And it's like half the time Bill Bixby or um, David Banner would have different colored pants on, like brown or black or gray or whatever. Jeans or whatever. Jeans or whatever. And then he would his pants would always turn purple. That always bugged me. In my head, I knew why it was like that. Like I couldn't really explain it. They just didn't want to have to keep ripping different colors of pants. <laughs> they, they had they had the pant they had the one pair of pants and they were like, well, this will this will just have to do. Like Lou Ferrigno to costume, Lou Ferrigno to costume. He would just get in those pants. All right, I'm re- I'm ready. You know my quick uh, just quickly my memory of the Hulk. Um, you know, uh, grew up I grew up uh, Jewish, so we would go to services on Friday nights, and that's when the Hulk would come on. So Jared and I would be watching it. And we'd have to go and be like, but, but it's not over yet. That's Man. awful. That's so yeah, sad. terrible. We'd always have to leave to go to services. That was before VCRs too, right? No, I, I don't even think we had one by that time. That was pretty early. But man, what disappointment having to leave that show. That was on for, a, that had a pretty good run too, didn't it? That was on three or four years. It did. And, and that probably did capture a few, I'm sure a few adults at the time, like young adults. I'm sure. The would. landing for superheroes in the 70s was TV. Apart from Superman. It was television, but really, what the there's there are a couple guys that really began to change the course of that. And this guy, Michael Uslan, I think is how you pronounce his name, was just a guy from Jersey who was a professor. Taught this. It was like it was basically an experimental one hour course on comic book history and comic book art, and it was a one hour credit. And he was doing it at this at this university and. Through that, he began to do a lot of talk shows, radio shows, TV shows, and he eventually got an, a job offer from DC Comics, and so he started working for, for DC Comics, and he was the guy, he was the visionary, I guess, that really said there could be a market for a return to the original intent of the Batman character, which was a lot darker, a lot more true to the winged vigilante concept and breaking that camp mold that I think everyone just sort of assumed was Batman. And that wasn't really anything like what Batman was. And um, I think he was also helped by the Frank Miller graphic novels of the 80s. But he spent about 10 years, he, he bought the rights to the Batman films and spent about 10 years trying to get this Batman film made. He ended up buying the, the rights. The, is it the film rights to Batman that he bought? Or TV rights? Or? It was Michael Uslan and this other guy, Benjamin Melnicker. They purchased the film rights of Batman from DC Comics in 1979. 
And he wanted to make the definitive dark version, a serious version of Batman, the way that Bob Kane had originally envisioned it back in the third, like the late thirties, you know, creature of the night, stalking criminals in the shadows, that kind of thing. And every studio he would go to wanted a version of the, of the campy sixties show. He's like, no, that's not what I wanted to do. So he then wrote a script that I don't think he intended the script to actually be used, but he wanted to give some of the film industry, some of the different studios, an idea of what it could look like. He called it Return of the Batman. Eventually, he, he hooked up with some guys who completed an actual script in the early 80s, and it focused on Batman and Robin, and it had the, the, it had the Joker. Then they started actually making some progress with it in the mid-80s, and that's when Warner Brothers was interested in it and... If you had to sort of zero in on the one thing that happened that made this start to get really cool was when Tim Burton was hired right after Pee-wee's, uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He, uh, he was hired actually before Beetlejuice. He made Beetlejuice in between, but he was hired to take over Batman in 86, which would have been right after Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which if I'm Michael Uslan, I'm thinking, oh man, like that's exactly the kind of director I didn't want, you know? And I think he was further disheartened when Michael Keaton was then announced to play Batman. Because Michael Keaton was mostly in comedies. Beetlejuice, of course. Johnny Dangerously. Mr. Mom. Um, what was his other big... What was Gung-ho. It? Gung-ho. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, screwball comedies almost. <laughs> yeah, gung-ho. Tim Burton approached Michael Keaton to be Batman... One, because I think he thought he would be good, but I think he also had, he'd also worked with him. And so he had that kind of familiarity with him. This would have been Burton's first big budget Hollywood movie. And I'm sure he was probably really nervous. Like any familiarity at all would help. Any kind of continuity to your previous film. Uh, I mean, I guess he could have chosen Alec Baldwin or Paul Um, Rubens. Yeah, that would have been weird, though. I guess Alec Baldwin wouldn't have been bad. Oh yeah, Alec Baldwin could have nailed it. I bet. So who else could have played it? Who were your big leading men? Tom Hanks. Um, no, a little bit too goofy. Tom Cruise. Two Tom Cruise. Two Tom Cruise. I, Tom Hanks. I don't think is bad. I mean, at the time, his career arc was kind of similar to Michael Keaton's. I guess that's true. Um, I guess it's for some reason he could. I, th- I think Tom Hanks is a good enough actor to have figured it out. He probably would have figured it out and done a great job. I just my first instinct was like you know. But you're right. Yeah, um, Keaton was in goofy comedies. Who else was big? Like um, I think Harrison Ford could have done it. He would have been a good Bruce Wayne. Man, imagine that! Wow, that would have been awesome. Harrison Ford and Nicholson. I I like Keaton's performance a lot actually, and um, it's it, he plays Bruce Wayne as a guy who's insane, who has not been able to deal with the trauma of seeing his parents murdered in front of him. And he always seems like if he's not Batman, he's going to go nuts. Like he's going to go crazy. Like Batman keeps him sane. The, the only way that he can deal with it is he has to continue to fight crime. Like he's, he's still trying to work off that stress and he just can't, he can't let it go. And, Obviously. I mean, he's got to be insane to be doing what he's doing. It always gets implied. Like, there's this one scene where Kim Basinger says, they're talking about the Joker, and he's like, he's psychotic. Take that to the press. 
I might have some trouble with that. A lot of people think you're as dangerous as the Joker. He's psychotic. Some people say the same thing about you. What people? Well, I mean, let's face it. You're not exactly normal. When he's Bruce Wayne, he's almost just waiting to be Batman. Like, he just sits around waiting for an opportunity to go out there and exercise these demons. And really, the only thing that's preventing him from going nuts and having a complete mental breakdown is dressing up as a crazy-looking bat and taking out his aggression on bad guys. I mean, he's a pretty... It's a dark... It really is a dark character. I don't know that Michael Keaton gets the credit he deserves for really bringing that weird underlying insanity to the character. Do you think they actually talked about the dichotomy between the way the Joker acts, which is so over the top, and then Michael Keaton's Batman, which mm -hmm. is so subdued because even if you talk about <laughs> Christian Bale who has that low gruff voice and he's like he's more willing to be like where is he <laughs> and and then but Michael Keaton didn't do that yeah. really at all I mean he really still played it pretty low key even when he was fighting uh -huh. um so do you think that that was a real plan like hey if you're going to be crazy I'm going to be low key I'm not going to talk a lot and if I do talk his voice is very low he really doesn't like yell a lot you know you have to have a yin and a yang you have to have a straight man straight man right right and and keaton was which is great he's like he was always kind of not the straight man in his other films that's the harder that's always the harder role to play you're the eyes of the audience when you're the straight man let me tell you about this guy i know jack mean kid bad seed i like him already tell me something my friend you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight I always ask that of all my prey. I just like the sound of it. Never rub another man's rhubarb. <laughs> I'm only laughing on the outside. My smile is just skin deep. If you could see inside, I'm really crying. You might join me for a week. <laughs> curious what your thoughts are but this movie really is about the joker it's called batman but the joker is the one that really takes center stage and you kind of alluded to it before when you were talking about how how jack nicholson played the role because he's so over the top as an actor and as a character i think it's it was nearly impossible to not have him the focus of this movie as as a, a villain i think if you know fast forward to the dark knight right with uh heath ledger and uh christian bale i think heath ledger obviously the performance is incredible but i don't necessarily think he's the center of the movie there's a good chunk of the movie he's not actually in the movie it definitely focuses more on batman's journey but in this one batman 1989 um all about jack nicholson i think Still one of the biggest paychecks ever for a movie. If you adjust for inflation, he got paid about $100 million for this movie. Gosh. Because he got, and isn't that amazing? He got, uh, he got a cut of the profits, film royalties. He got paid a salary. I think it was a $6 million salary at the time, which was still a ton of money. And then he got a slice of the merchandising. And um, still one of the biggest paychecks ever. But I don't think the movie works really as well with someone else in that role. I think, you know what, what's, um, 
what's kind of funny about Jack Nicholson is I went through IMDb and so this movie came out in 1989 and I obviously knew who Jack Nicholson was, but I went through all his movies up until 1989. I hadn't seen a single one of them by the time I, when I was 13, when I saw this movie, 1989, I had probably seen bits and pieces of certain movies. I'd definitely seen them on TV and commercials or trailers for other movies, but I don't think I'd seen a single Jack Nicholson movie all the way through before this movie. That's probably mostly true for me as well, especially as young as we were. I'm trying to think of anything we would have seen him in i mean I, I was always into films and certainly didn't have a lot of restrictions like my parents didn't censor me that much so i might have come across some of his other stuff like maybe terms of endearment even at that age i probably would have seen it i'm sure that might be the only one only because i think my parents i think had rented it at some point and i probably had watched it but i doubt i finished it because it's kind of boring for yeah, a as, kid. as a kid yeah it's pretty heavy material i know i wouldn't have seen Chinatown or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Now, of course, I've seen all those movies since, but I hadn't seen Easy Rider or any of those things. Postman Rings Twice. Here are his 80s movies. You have Terms of Endearment, which, which you mentioned, Pritzy's Honor, Witches of Eastwick, Heartburn, Broadcast News, Iron Weed, and then Batman. I definitely saw... Witches of Eastwick, maybe? Witches of e- I definitely saw Witches of Eastwick. Yeah, no I don't know that I don't know that I did. So so you you had seen oh and then I forgot the shining. The shining would have started the eighties. I, I know I hadn't seen that at that time. Out of those movies, you would you would have seen one. I don't think I'd seen any of them. So it's kind of weird that this would have been my first entree, I guess, to Jack Nicholson was through this movie. I guess that shows how big of a star he was, because when I think back, I knew he was a star then. So how would you know if you didn't really know what he he'd really been in um he's i guess he's that much of a larger than life actor that's the thing like i knew exactly who he was but hadn't seen him in anything all right so uh batman 1989 adjusted box office gross 493 million it brought in 250 million at the time making it the biggest film of 1989 by a pretty decent margin but let's talk about the flaws of this movie because it's a cliche to say that this was style over substance, but I think that probably describes this movie perfectly, wouldn't you say? Things happen really quickly, plot-wise. Alexander Knox, the reporter played by Robert Wool, when Vicki Vale, obviously played by Kim Basinger, shows up and they meet, they're literally like best friends in two seconds. Like, yeah. Uh-huh. It's like they've known each other, and I guess that's because they want the audience to like them and like them together, and so they just were like... Because, like, literally the first scene to the second scene, it seems like they've known each other for years. And that's one of those things that this movie gets maybe a little bit wrong. I mean, I guess in a, in, a, in the the context of a film, they have to move it along. But, you know, um, what about Vicki Vale and Bruce Wayne falling in love real fast? Like a day. They have one date and they're like, all of a sudden they're together. They sleep with each other on the first date. Yeah, that's not so unusual, I guess. But... <laughs> to all of us, to then all of a sudden fall in love after one date, and then he sh- he tells her he's Batman. I mean, well, actually, he doesn't. Alfred outs him. I mean, I think he wanted her to know, which is messed up. But also, Alfred exposes his true identity after one date. Like you're not supposed to do that. She brings him down in there, and and you like you would yeah. think he'd be like, Alfred, can I can I speak to you in private for a moment? A lot of these uh, these elements that happen quickly are very comic book like so we have to point that out because if you're going to try to make a comic book movie 
I mean, that's comic book. Comic books do two things that are unique to comic books. One, they explain what's happening in the scene, right? So a lot of comic book movies, usually the beginning, someone is going to, it's like a bunch of guys about to rob something or do something. And they're talking about what they're doing and how it's working out. And, you know, uh, this happens in comic books. And the other thing is things have to move quickly um, because there's not a lot of pages, you know, unless it's a graphic novel that they don't have a lot of time. When Batman drops Joker into the vat of whatever that is, chemicals, he shows up after that guy, you know, tries to fix his face. Literally, he that he's in, sitting in that chair, the guy, the doctor's trying to fix his face. And then the next scene, he shows up with Carl Grissom and he's like, Joker, like he has his name. He's his villain name. Like, joke, you can call me Joker. Like, just because he laughed once at that last scene, like, because he, he was, like, kind of crazy now or whatever. Like, well, so, like, on the way over, you're like, oh, man, what should I call myself? <laughs> he's driving in the car, like. He's on the bus. He's like, prankster. Oh, Joker. Jack is dead, my friend. You can call me Joker. And as you can see, I'm a lot happier. <laughs> Origin stories are always always tough in comic book movies. I like it when you know the characters. You already have a... I don't need to know really how Peter Parker turned into Spider-Man. I know he got bit by a spider that happened to have radioactive whatever in it. Every movie does some version of it. It's like, you know, is there anyone on Earth that doesn't know that Peter Parker was bit by a radioactive spider? I mean... I don't, li- I don't like the origin story of the Joker because it's not... First of all, it's not right. Maybe it's a minor fault. Maybe it's not something that's so crucial, but it does slow down the pacing of the film and then it speeds up. There, there's a lot of pacing issues, I think, with this movie. The, the last third of the film is almost where I lose interest. Yeah, it gets a little bit kind of boring. And I can tell you right exactly from where it is for me, but it's that scene where Jack Nicholson goes on live television and has that satellite hookup and is kind of laying out his plan and is inviting everyone to come to his parade. And from then to the rest, to the end of the movie, I kind of, that's kind of where I stop it if I'm rewatching it. Yeah, yeah, agree. That second half really gets boring to me. I would recommend it, but um, we talked a little bit about this being the modern blockbuster. Um, I think this invented the modern blockbuster, but this movie had two soundtracks. It had the Danny Elfman score, which is great, by the way. I can't think of Batman without hearing that score. Danny Elfman, of course, uh, legendary composer, so many themes that you recognize, um, and this is no exception. Pee-wee, Beetlejuice, Simpsons, Batman. He didn't do uh, Ed Wood. I know he didn't do Ed Wood. Mm -mm. I wouldn't say that it's as good as a John Williams score or as um, defining as a John Williams score can be for a movie like you don't you can't watch you can't think of Star Wars without hearing the music you can't think of Indiana Jones without hearing the music you can't think of Jaws without hearing the music and I think you can't think of this version of Batman without hearing the music I think he he holds his own up there with as he gets as close to a John Williams-esque defining score as anybody is anybody out there I think and then of course the right. other soundtrack is Prince I mean, Prince wrote 
10 songs, nine or 10 songs all about Batman. It's bizarre that he's there. And it makes me feel like, you remember on Scooby-Doo when they would pull the mask off? <laughs> yeah. And it would be like, like Prince. Like, that's what it feels like. What are you doing here? You know? That's exactly what it feels like. It's like, what? Oh, oh Bat Dance. Oh, okay. Well. And I kind of bought into it, to be honest. I, obviously, as a kid, I even had the soundtrack. and Oh, I had the soundtrack. Oh, I got a live one here. <laughs> He basically is riffing on on the '60s theme. I think. I think he's yeah, trying to do his own. The first song he ever learned to play was the Batman theme. The the rumor is that Warner Brothers basically went to Tim, went to Tim Burton and said, "Look, we want you to do the movie, but you're going to have to if you want to be in the big time and do a big blockbuster, there are going to have to be some concessions that you're going to have to just accept if you want to do that. And one of them is." You're gonna to have to find a way to shoehorn some pop hits into this film, <laughs> and he was he was basically given a list of the Warner Brothers stable of artists and said, "Pick who you want." And out of that list, the one that he could live with was Prince, and that's and it was it was not a Tim Burton, it was not an aesthetic decision or an auteur type decision. He wasn't putting Prince music in there for artistic purposes. It was mostly for commercial purposes. When you go back, and it's it's another one of the big flaws of this film. I like some of the songs on it. I could listen to Party Man or Trust in my car, but I don't want it in the movie. It takes you out of the movie. It takes you. It turns it into a print, like the museum scene, which is probably the most memorable scene in the film. But it makes it turns it into a Jack Nicholson Prince music video. Yeah, it is weird and. You know, there's, you know, the big movie studios are no stranger to merchandising and all that stuff. And and it totally worked, too. I mean, it really did. Yeah, oh, um, yeah. I remember watching the video countdown on MTV and, and uh, Bat Dance was in the top 10 easily. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it, all that stuff is popular. So I get why, why they do it. Um, and sadly, it's a big part of some of the larger uh, spectacle movies, including comic book movies and yep. this this one fell victim to it but if you're judging it based on you know a quality film you know christopher nolan did a better job of keeping that stuff out christopher nolan had the benefit of this type of success it showed that you could make a dark version of batman and it could be successful christopher nolan didn't have to fight through some of that big studio type stuff because the blueprint had already been established you know what i mean and he benefited from that in the, in the Batman universe, what had happened between Batman 1989 and the decision to go to a grittier, darker Batman in the early 2000s? The debacle known as Batman and Robin. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about the two Joel Schumacher movies. Please don't. 
<laughs> didn't we see these movies together? Yeah, yeah, we did in the theater. Yeah. Yeah, we, we saw all four. Did we saw? Well, not the first one. Well, technically, we were in the same physically in the same space for the for all four of them. I think. I, I believe so. I would be willing to bet. Um, Batman I know we saw Returns. Batman Returns together. I know we did. Yes. Um, and maybe we didn't see Batman. Maybe we didn't see Batman Forever together. Maybe not. But Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin—they get increasingly goofier. I guess it's because really there's a couple of reasons. One, the villains that they choose and the way the actors choose to portray those villains get it gets worse. You know, you've got Batman Returns, you got Penguin, you know, um, and uh, Two Face. Is Two Face in, in Batman Returns? Am I thinking right? No, no, he's in Batman Forever. So Batman Returns, the main villain is Penguin, played by Danny DeVito. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's so over the top. And then Batman Forever through Batman and Robin, you've got you know uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's just they're they're just playing it so over the top. Jim Carrey as the Riddler. Yeah, once Tim Burton left, then it kind of went back to the '60s TV show. Well, it's a comic book, right? So let's make it like a comic book, like Goofy. It's just it's just shy of missing that, like when they punch each other, like pow. Bat nipples and. Robin, Robin, who's Robin? Um, What's that guy's name? It's a real ordinary name too. Chris, it's going to kill me here. Um, Chris Williams. Chris Evans. No, that's a different guy. Um, Chris O'Connell. Chris Chris O'Donnell. That sounds familiar. Is that right? Chris, I don't know. (laughs) Chris O'Donnell. Yeah, it's Chris O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell. So, you know, there's one scene in Batman and Robin. I remember being in the theater already suffering through this movie. People are flying all over the place. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? There's a scene when, like, the villains are just, like, bouncing from one thing to another. It's just a very odd fight sequence. And I just remember thinking, like, I want to leave the theater right now. I remember that like it was yesterday. Like, I was uncomfortable in my seat. Because it's really before stadium seating, really. I mean, it kind of was starting then, but... I'm amazed we didn't walk out of it. Yeah, because we were prone to doing that once things got really bad. Um, Dracula, Dracula dead, dead, and, <laughs> dead and loving it. And why so serious? I want to get to perhaps the best era of Batman, and that would be the Christopher Nolan years. You had three really interesting movies that came out, a trilogy, if you will. Uh, Batman Begins, which came out in 05, The Dark Knight, which came out in 08, and then, of course, The Dark Knight Rises, which came out in 2012. And it's saying a lot to say that the best of these three is The Dark Knight, because Batman Begins and The Dark Knight Rises are still really, really good. The Dark Knight Rises, it's a little bit tougher to get through, but people didn't like it quite as much. And I was kind of one of those where I was like, yes, because the Dark Knight just raised the bar so high. It was going to be hard to beat it. The one the one difference between the Dark Knight Rises, I mean, well, first of all, Tom Hardy is a, is a good Bane. He's not a bad villain, but there's just no way you can top Heath Ledger. I was I was just so impressed with the way he whatever take he has on it. He he just played it so good. He's so good in it. And there are a couple of scenes that are still creep that still creep me out. What are those? Tell me what those are. They've captured him, and he's back in jail. They they clap for uh, Commissioner Gordon, and he claps too. And there's just I think that's a really iconic viewpoint when it cuts back to him and he's clapping and he's got that weird like side smile. This guy, I mean, some people say this role killed him. 
you know, because he had to get inside that head so much. Uh, even Jack, I read a quote years ago from Jack Nicholson saying, I, I told Heath Ledger that he was going to have to be careful with this one. He, uh, he isolated himself in a hotel room for two months to research and build this character. So he, I don't think he would be characterized as a method actor, would he? Well, from this role, you could probably say that. The way that he licks his scars sometimes. It's so small of a thing, but it's like a tick. And now another thing is that the scars themselves was a brilliant way to characterize the Joker in this film because, yeah, he has scar. The, the smile is supposed to be scars or whatever. Um, but this is from something different. We don't actually we don't ever know what the scars are from because he lies about it. You look nervous. Is it the scars? You want to know how I got them? He tried to cover it up with like like very crude paint. Um, so everything makes sense versus he fell in a vat of chemicals and now his smiles were big. You know, it's like, it's like, uh, that doesn't make any sense. But for this one, you, you really believe it. The best villains are those who don't think that they're villains. And sometimes when that happens in movies, I think you get just a better, that's how you portray a villain. You want to kill me? (laughs) I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Let me read off the best supporting actors that were nominated in 2008. Uh, Heath Ledger, of course. Robert Downey Jr. for Tropic Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> he was funny. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman for Doubt. Josh Brolin for Milk. And then Michael Shannon for Revolutionary Road. A really good list. And they actually changed the criteria, or they changed the rules for the Academy Award for the Oscars after this movie because this movie was not nominated for Best Picture. This was the year where they changed it from five to ten nominees. It was after this year because there was so much backlash for The Dark Knight not getting nominated. So they ended up changing it to where they now have extra movies, which I'm not saying I agree with that decision. I think that's, I think it's, it was an interesting knee-jerk reaction based solely on this film. You know, uh, you were talking about last night, and I hadn't even noticed it. Um, the the score in the fr- opening scene um, of them actually just I'll let you describe it, but really, really interesting. The Hans Zimmer score, that opening scene, the bank heist, which is kind of like a homage or a callback to Heat. There's this long sustained D note that plays over the entire opening bank heist from start to finish, and. Right when the Joker reveals himself to, uh, is that, is that William Fickner? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is that guy going to get his own movie? I, I don't know. Him. He's always really good. He, I've seen him in comedies and I've seen him in serious movies. And there's he's something great. about him that always, he, he's always able to pull off whatever he's trying to do. But anyway, right when the Joker reveals himself to him, it goes from a D to a C, a D note to a C note. And it's a, I mean, as clever of a tribute as you can get to DC Comics. I mean, it's brilliant. The, the way that the music was recorded or the way the instrumentation was done is they used razor blades to, that screeched along piano strings, D piano strings and D violin strings to get that really jagged sound. And you can almost hear the scraping of the of the razor blades against the strings. Like it's setting the tone and it never stops the whole entire time, the whole movie.
the most memorable scene of the film, I think there's two candidates. You throw in a third if you think of a third. I think I think the top two would have to be the bank heist, the opening bank heist, and then, well, there maybe there's three. That the chase in the tunnel with the grenade launcher. The stunts in that movie, and I love. I'm a huge fan of real stunts, not just like computer generated images. You know, um, that scene is probably one of my favorite action sequences of all times. It's so good, and that's before the next scene that I bet you're about to mention too. Oh, the standoff in the street. The standoff, yes. Yeah, I love it. They're they're playing chicken in the street, and and uh, Batman's coming right at him. And well, I guess right before that is the when that 18 wheeler does that flip. That is probably my favorite scene. First of all, the best scene it starts when um, Batman he crashes the Batmobile, and then out of that comes the the the. Uh, the bat cycle. That's when my favorite sequence starts because it's just so, so incredibly cool. And then by the time in, in uh, the stuff where you see the bike, the wheels turning in the opposite way and he's able to go up on the wall and turn around real quick. <laughs> it's, it's so cool. And it, cause it could have been so stupid. It could have been so stupid and, the, and it doesn't feel stupid at all. And then once he is able to wrap those ropes around that 18 wheeler and then it flips it, that is the coolest thing. It just feels, it's like it comes out of nowhere. The part that always cracks me up is like the Joker gets out of the truck and like falls over. Like, he's just like randomly <laughs> shooting just because he's like, that's a that's another good example of nuance, right? He's, he stays in character even stumbling out of the truck. Like his finger's always on the trigger, you know? Like even when he's, even when he's dizzy and shaken up and can barely walk, his machine gun is going off. I don't think that we can talk about Batman as a whole picture without talking about the Lego Batman, which came out in 2017. There are so many things about this movie that are brilliant. Is it the best movie in the world? No. Does it drag in the second half of the movie like most comic book movies do? Yes. But the first half of this movie, they cram so many hilarious jokes about Batman into the first 30 minutes of this film. They uh, basically make fun of every element of not only comic books in general, but comic book movies, Batman movies, like everything that you would have ever thought about, even in the back of your mind that why do they do it that way? They will, they, they bring it out to the front and the forefront and they make fun of it. One of the things that it nails, like you're saying, is just how preposterous it is that Batman stops all these criminals all the time, yet they continuously keep committing crime. That's really the plot in the end. Joker and Batman realize they need each other, which is kind of what uh, Heath Ledger. Remember where Heath Ledger's hanging upside down? He says that same thing. He's like, "You, you know, you need me, like I need you," and that kind of thing. And they actually use that for this, but they, and it's more of an unjoking way. But it makes total sense, and it just makes you. It sort of brings out that element of storytelling that is obvious. That ob- it's like, what would Batman do without Joker? What's What's kind of funny is that we've talked about all these different Batman movies, and it's almost like. The Joker's been the villain, I think, in every movie we've talked about. 1989, Dark Knight, the Batman 1966, and now this one. This Joker, this particular Joker in this kids movie is probably the only the only iteration of the Joker where it's very clear what he wants. 
and it's he wants acknowledgement from Batman. He wants acceptance from Batman. And I don't know that in, in any of the other Batman movies we've talked about, you ever really know what the Joker is really what he wants like what does jack nicholson's joker want like what is he trying to do <laughs> he's just well they they fall back on the fact that he's crazy hi batman so weird to keep running into you <laughs> it's gotta be one or the other batman save the city or catch your greatest enemy you can't do both i'm sorry you think you're my greatest enemy yes you're obsessed with me no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are! Who else drives you to one-up them the way that I do? Bane. No, he doesn't. Superman. Superman's not a bad guy. Then I'd say that I don't currently have a bad guy. I am fighting a few different people. What? I like to fight around. Okay, look, I'm, I'm fine with you fighting other people if you want to do that. But what we have is special. So when people ask you who's your number one bad guy, you say... Superman. Are you seriously saying that there is nothing, nothing special about our relationship? Whoa. Let me tell you something, Jaybird. Batman doesn't do ships. What? As in relationships. You mean nothing to me. It took a kid's movie to expose the Joker and Batman for really what they are better than any Christopher Nolan or Tim Burton film. There you are. <laughs> I am so sorry. I have incredible reflexes. No, it's all my fault, sir. I should have known better than to sneak up on you like that. Sorry, I just lost in thought, and as you know, when I'm in there, I'm in deep. Were you looking at the old family pictures again? At the what? The old family? Oh, yes, I see what you mean. Look at that. The old gang. Yeah, no, I wasn't. Sir, if you don't mind my saying, I'm a little concerned. I've seen you go through similar phases in 2016 and 2012 and 2008 and 2005 and 1997 and 1995 and 1992 and 1989 and that weird one in 1966. At a million percent. And if you think that there's something behind that, then you're crazy. Thanks to everyone for listening. Please go subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a comment. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a note and we will see you next time. thing I want to talk about on Batman 1989 before we move on. You know what else came out in 1989? Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Dead Poet Society, Little Mermaid, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Major League, Look Who's Talking, Christmas Vacation, Parenthood, Lethal Weapon 2, Back to the Future 2, uh, and Josh, your favorite movie of all time, Weekend at Bernie's.
what a year for movies. That's incredible. Yeah, that is an incredible year. Yeah, isn't that a big year? And I was kidding. Your, your real favorite movie that came out this year was UHF. UHF. Oh, man. God. Fe- featuring a young Michael Richards. I saw that in the theater. I did, too. At the Dollar Theater. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so funny. Wow. Yeah, we were fans of movies. If we were seeing UHF in the 